This is actually quite an opportunity for me, and I really appreciate it uh, that your church is um, is sensitive to things in the community and, and things like that. But um, I'm going to show uh, behind me, I'm going to show a bunch of pictures. And um, you don't have to look at me. You look up there, you can see that there is life there. And that's that's the most important thing, that there's life there. Oh, yeah. Okay. It feels good. Thanks, man. Uh, boy, I'm free. Free at last. <laughs> Isn't that Martin Luther King, right? Free at last, free at last. Thank God Almighty. I'm free at last. I can't wait for those things to be gone. So um, what I'm going to do is uh, I parrot a lot of things. And um, I'm, I'm, I'm not really well educated. And you're like, oh, Bob, come on. But I parrot a lot of things when I hear something that really resonates with my heart. And so I only have 15 minutes, but there's a guy named Francis Shaver, and some of you old drummers might know him. Um, and he, um, he did something over in Switzerland called Debris that was really counter Christian evangelical culture. And I'm going to read to you. This touched my heart, and I, I want to share it with you. Uh, this is excerpts from the book, uh, The Church at the End of the 20th Century. And um, I'm going to parrot that for you. So he says, much uh, of our gospel as we preach it has little or no con content. We sometimes fall into the trap of saying the same thing that the liberal says, but in our own evangelical jargon instead of his. Trying to be modern, we say something like this to young people, drop out, take a trip with Jesus. What does that mean? <laughs> Nothing. Gobbledygook. It's a uh, contentless statement without meaning. And then secondly, our Christianity must become truly universal, relevant to all segments of society and all societies of the world. It goes on to say, we have had an enormous lack of compassion. We have said um, that we believe that men are lost, but what evidence for this have we shown the world? When it comes to uh, poor and the Jews and, and others as well. Now we are doing exactly the same thing with the new outsider, the young. And I understand that your, your youth group here uh, is in need uh, a little bit. So we're going to talk about the young. This is what we need to do. Now we are doing exactly the same thing with the outsider, the young. What are we doing to assimilate the new radical element? He calls it radical. This is back in the 70s. Mighty little. We drive them away from us in school and our churches and very often uh, even in our families. If any of these young are different from us in the smaller detail, the most unimportant and unessential detail, we simply do not have love and compassion for them. I'm talking about the community. We fail to show any community at all if their lifestyle differs in any way from our own mentality. I'm looking at myself in the mirror, ladies and gentlemen. I, I've done this. I, I know what it, what it, what the mentality is. The early Christian church cut across all lines, which divided Jew and Greek, Greek and barbarians, male and female, from the naturally proud Gentiles in Macedonia who sent material help to the naturally proud Jews who called all Gentiles dogs. And yet, who could not keep the good news to themselves, but it took to the Gentiles in Antioch. 
The observable and practical love in our days certainly should also, without reservation, cut across all such lines and languages, nationalities, national frontiers, younger, older, colors of skin, education and economic levels, accent, line of birth, the class system of our particular locality, dress, short and long hair among whites and African and non-African, hairdos among blacks, the wearing of shoes and non-wearing of shoes, cultural differentiations, and the more traditional and less traditional form of worship. I want to tell you, it can work. And at Labrie, which is where he was in Switzerland, let me keep saying, it's far from perfect. What do we find? Many young people from evangelical circles come every year and they arrive and say, we are from such and such a school, from an evangelical background, and you are our last hope. 70s, 50 years ago. We have heard that there may be some answers here. What do they do? They try us out. They come to church in their blue jeans. They see if they are going to be accepted. The next Sunday, they come in bare feet, and we have to pass the test. When we pass the test, we can begin to talk, but we have to pass the test. This is community. This is compassion. This is the area where we have to function is this hitting home with you? Because it did to me 15 years ago when I first heard this to say, Bob, you need to be stretched. Is there any absolute reason to wear shoes, either to class or to church? I can't find it in the norm of the New Testament. Many a time our little chapel is jammed and these students come and there they sit. I or others who preach don't preach for 20 minutes. We preach for an hour and 15 minutes every Sunday morning. And these students come and sit. They sit with their bare feet. They sit in their blue jeans. And they sit in their weird clothes. And they learn that it doesn't matter to us. In reality, therefore, I don't think we have to worry much about youth what we have to worry about is the church. If the church is what it should be, <laughs> young people will be there. But they will not just be there. They will be there with symbols, and they will be there dancing with flowers, and they will be there with blowing their horns. Even when the church is a little bit of what it should be, the young people will come. They will come in their own way. They will come from the ends of the earth when the church is in some poor fashion that which God meant it to be. So much for general requirements. What about specific tasks? The specific things we can do by the power of the Holy Spirit to make the church come alive for today and tomorrow. You know, you go into different churches and you sense there's a spirit that's alive there because people are putting into practice what they believe, what they read. And when they read something and they say, this is truth, I'm going to live it, it should change our hearts and it should be exciting. And these kids are coming and we got to say, yes, Lord, bring them.
Open your home for community. Open your home for community. Don't start a big program. Don't suddenly think you can add to your church budget and begin. Start personally and start in your own homes. I dare you in the name of Jesus Christ. Do what I am going to suggest. Begin by opening your home for community. But I want to ask you something. If you are rich in the standards that we have here, in the past, how many poor people have you fed in your dinner table? How many poor people have you felt at home in your home or have felt at home in your home? And if you haven't had any poor people in your home, shut up about the poor people. On the basis of Scripture, open your home to the poor. And if they invite you, go with joy into their homes. Have them feel at home in your home. Then you will be able to begin to talk with them, and your church can jump across this division as it should, but not before. And if you are a a poor Christian, it all cuts equally the other way. How many... Um, rich people have you invited into your home in the last year? People that maybe would be considered poor. We're talking about Bain and Grantstown. How many people? Many have eaten at our table. There comes a cost, ladies and gentlemen. There comes a cost. How many times in the past year? Let's see if I can't get it. No. How many times in the past year have you risked having a drunk vomit on your carpet? How many in uh, how in the world then can you talk about compassion and about community, about the church's job in the inner city? It's costly. If you think what God has done here is easy, you don't understand. It's a costly business to have a sense of community. Labrie cannot be explained merely by the clear doctrine that it preached. It cannot be explained by the fact that God has here been giving intellectual answers to intellectual questions. I think those things, those two things are important. In about the first three years, all, all of our wedding presents were wiped out. Our sheets were torn. Holes were burned in our rugs. Indeed, once a whole curtain almost burned up from somebody smoking in our living room. Poor people came to our table, black and white, oriental, came to our table. Everybody came to our table. It couldn't happen any other way. Drugs came to our place. People vomited in our rooms. How many times has this happened to you? You see, you don't need a big program. You don't have to convince your session or board. All you have to do is open your home and begin. And there is no place in God's world where there are no people who will come and share a home as long as it is a real home. The unantiseptic risk. 
How many times have you risked an unantiseptic situation by having a girl who might easily have a sexual disease sleep between your sheets? We just heard from Rhonda. We have girls come to our homes who have three or four abortions by the time they are 17. Is it possible they have venereal disease? Of course. But they sleep between our sheets. How many times have you let this happen in your home? Do you see this is where we must begin? This is what the love of God means. This is the admonition of the elder, that he must be given to hospitality. Are you an elder? Are you given to hospitality? If not, keep quiet. There is no talking, but you can begin. There is a different kind of unantiseptic situation. How many times have you had a drug taker come into your home? Sure, it is a danger to your family and you must be careful, but have you ever risked it? If you don't risk it, what are you talking about the drug problem for? If in the name of Christ you have not tried to help somebody in this horrible situation... If you have never done any of these things or things of this nature, if you have been uh, married for years and years and had a home or even a room and none of this has ever occurred, if you have been quiet, especially as our culture is crumbling about us, if this is so, do you really believe that people are going to hell? And if you really believe that, how can you stand and say, I have never paid the price to open my living place and do the things that I can do. I have a question in my mind about us evangelicals. We fight the liberals when they say there is no hell. But do we really believe people are going to hell? When I was a pastor, I knew what it meant to go down to the nightclubs at night and fish the drunks out at 3 or 4 o'clock in the morning and take them to their Homes, do you? This is challenging me. I want to tell you, this has been 15 years in the making. Do you ever open your home to the crazy friends, your own children uh, bring home? When your kids come home and they have brought some crazy kook, and he wears long hair and strange clothes, and he comes with his transistor radio plugged into his ear. Transistor radios, you know they're no longer. The kids that your own children bring, are they welcome? Ask them, and you will get some honest answers, and we must cry. If our children see us paying prices this way in our homes, and then see it moving over the beginning uh, over and beginning in our churches, we can be sure that this sense of unreality that is such a blight, such a cancer in the evangelical church will begin to dissipate. The Bible says we are to give out cups of cold water. How many have we ever given out to a long-haired and a barefooted boys? Don't try to get your church to begin if you haven't begun it for yourself. Do you talk against the affluent society? That's another thing. 
that we evangelicals are now good at. We are against the rich. How many times have you risked your share in that society, getting nicked and scratched in the name of Jesus Christ? How many times have you risked breaking the springs of your car, crowding kids uh, into uh, to take them somewhere? Don't talk about being against the rich unless you put that share of the rich society or affluent society, which is your hoard, on the line. And don't dare tell me that these things I'm saying are not a part of the teaching of the Word of God concerning rich and real community. But Christian pastors come to me and they say, don't you understand? If I begin this, I'm going to get kicked out of my church. If I bring uh, poor and the long-haired kids into my home, if I really get close to them and they begin to love me and trust me and then come to church, I may get kicked out. We send martyrs off to the ends of the earth and say, go ahead and die for Jesus. Why not here at home? If we don't have the courage in Jesus Christ to take a chance of getting kicked out of our churches and being ostracized today, what are we going to do when difficulties come and we face this revolution that's coming and it really is kind of here? What are we going to do then? If we don't have the courage to open our homes and begin to enter these things into our churches, slowly begin to make the changes. I think that if we fall to train our muscles, or if we fail, I'm sorry, to train our muscles in such little places, when the uh, difficulty comes, when the hard times come, especially if it comes violently from the new left, most of the evangelical church will just give way beneath it. We had better begin because the hard times with all its manipulation is coming. Pray that the Lord will send you the people of his choice, but don't pray that we th that way unless no matter who these people are across the whole board of the, this is the 20th century, but we're in the 21st century, man, you are willing to take them into your home. Have them at your table. Introduce them to your family and let them sleep between your sheets. It is a day of no small games. We need to teach a Christianity of content and purity of doctrine, and we need to practice that truth. If men, young or old, are to take our claim of truth seriously. Are you ready for the task? I hope so. I appreciate you listening. Donna and I are trying to implement this stuff in our life. And I think by these pictures, you can see that we're not there. We're not there by any means. But we're trying. And I think that's all God asked for, is that we try. And maybe some seeds were planted here today, and they might not be birthed for another 10 or 15 years, like with Donna and I. But it's the right thing to do when you know it. I knew it when I heard it. And I'm like, I don't know if I can do that. But you know, when you pray, God won't give you any more than you can handle. He will give you just what you can handle. And he's going to bring people that you can relate to. I got Brian and Rose here. Who are you pouring into? 
Now, I will say one thing. When Rob wakes up on a Monday morning, when I wake up on a Monday morning, I got nothing else to think about than growing in Christ, getting to know him better, and learning from him. Some of you guys are splintered. You work 40 hours a week, 50 hours a week, 60 hours a week, and then you're asked to come here and, and serve. Rob and I, we do that on the first hour of the week. You guys got 60 hours, 50 hours, 40 hours of work. We can pour in as full-time people right out of the chute, and we better be doing that. But you can do something, a little something, and maybe there was a seed planted today. You pray and ask God, open up your homes. We walked down to Baintown, and this guy, his name is Roy. He actually came to Christ. You probably saw him in the pictures if you watched it. But he came to Christ, and he's been into Sandalins 13, 14 times, he said. Schizophrenia. And he said, I've never, ever felt like this. And he said, thanks so much, Bob. And I said, thanks so much, Bob. Thanks so much, Jesus. We have such a privilege to share the word of God with whomever we, we can. I pray that you do that. And that life and vitality and strength and boldness and power empower you. And that your faith strengthens. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this church. I thank you for Jesus, most importantly. There's such realness in Christ. And if there's anybody here that has not, <clears throat> excuse me, experienced the realness of Jesus, that they would put in motion some of the things that maybe we've talked about this morning. <laughs> to love those people that are unconditional, uh, or to love those people that uh, unconditionally that, that maybe aren't so lovely. Maybe they, they don't fit in our socioeconomic background. Maybe they don't talk the right way, or just all the things that were listed that Francis Shaver listed. And I just so pray for the church to wake up. We pray for revival. But what does that look like? When these people come through the doors of our church and they stink and they talk weird and they dress weird and, and they need their metaphorical diapers changed, who's doing that? You've called us to do that, Lord. It's not easy. The grace that you give to us, we need to pass on to others. And I pray, Lord, that this church, that there would be a, 
a revival within the hearts of each person here. And that when people come in and they, they're, they're coming in from Bain and Grantstown, from Mason's Edition, that they would be embraced wholeheartedly because that's the only way we're going to be able to tell them about Jesus. If they don't believe that we love them, how do they believe that Jesus loves them? Lord, I, I pray for Baintown. I pray for those people there that come out on Saturdays at 4. And we've built such a trust since January. And it doesn't take much. It's just giving out cups of cold water. Not physically, but just spiritually, Lord. To be able to, to share the gospel, to give them hope, to encourage them. that They have never heard encouragement. They're always called screw-ups or lazy or what. Lord, we can, we, we're all that way. We're no better than they are. Just like Jesus said on the cross, forgive them, Father, they know not what they do. We're the ones that you choose to be able to teach them. So I pray, Lord, that we would embrace our calling, that we would get out there in the, the highways and byways, invite people to this incredible banquet that we're at. It's incredible. But if we don't believe it's incredible, how, how are they going to believe that? We are fortunate. We have won the greatest lottery in the world that you've chosen us to be your children. We've been adopted and spliced in as Gentiles, the King of kings and Lord of lords. Are we princes? Are we princesses of the King of kings and Lord of lords? Or are we going through the motions? Help us never to take that grace for granted, Lord. Every step, every breath, every heartbeat, every thought hold captive to you. And we have an incredible model in Christ and the Word of God. Help us to get into the Word and read it and apply it. We know that you're praying for us at the right hand of the Father. You've given us the Word and you give us the Holy Spirit that interprets the Word of God. We can't lose we can't lose if we apply your truth. We're winners. But help us not to ride the coattails of Jesus and still live the way we always want to. Then really, who's in control? So, Lord, I just pray that all those things that we sung about today, this morning in our prayer time, that all those things of the world will become strangely dim. And the only thing that we have is Christ's breath in us, and that we glorify him with our whole heart, mind, soul, and strength. You cannot contain the number of people in this church. You cannot contain the number of people in this country that want to come to Christ when they see authentic, genuine love for you. 3,000 churches on this island? For heaven's sake, this should be the Garden of Eden. And yet people still go to jail, and yet still people are just living like they always have. Help us, Lord. Empower us. We're the ones that are the standard bearers. Help us to get sharp, to study, to show ourselves approved, to have the answers, the, the, the life's questions right at our fingertips that so we can share with people that are asking. And they see that we're genuine, and they want to be genuine. Too much hypocrisy that we see. And we chase people away. May it never be that unless Bob, someone ever said, unless Bob Mastin was, you know, did, wasn't living it. I, I don't want to be a Christian because of Bob Mastin. 
He's a hypocrite. May that never be on any of our consciences. Are we living that way? Just because I'm behind this pulpit doesn't mean that we're not behind the pulpit in our own place of work and business and home, community. We're all behind a pulpit, and everybody is watching every move and every word. So, Lord Jesus, I just pray, Lord, for revival in the hearts of men. Turn back the darkness, Lord. We're the light. Help us to carry it strong and powerfully. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Thanks, church.